Hi, I'm Ryan Becker, and you're listening to the Rock Hill Seventh-day Adventist Church Official Sermon Archive. You can find more information about our church at www.rockhillsdachurch.org. We hope by listening to this message that you are encouraged and challenged in your walk with Christ. The Corinthian church was one of, was that, that was much like our modern church. See, the Corinthian church struggled with the role of genders. They struggled with the balance of work, works versus faith. They struggled with division among members, heresies being taught, how to love properly, etc. Really, the entire early church struggled with these issues to some degree. But the letters that Paul writes to the church of Corinth really expose these issues. In other words, we're given really a lot of transparency into what the Corinthian church was dealing with. And what we find out is, yeah, they're a lot like us. But what we are about to read is an issue that they dealt with, a very specific issue regarding the Lord's Supper. Now here's what would happen. Paul would go to a place, he would establish a church, he would establish leaders over that church, and then he would leave after about a year. And what would happen is those churches would then write him and say, hey, we've got these issues going on. What do we do? How do, I, how do we deal with some of these issues? And so Paul would write them letters in response. And so the only thing that we see in Scripture is his response. And from there, we have to infer what the actual problem was. And so luckily in this section, Paul is going to tell us exactly what the issue is. It is 1 Corinthians 11, starting in verse 17. He says, But in the following instructions, I do not commend you. Because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. Paul didn't come to play no games. <laughs> Paul is about to lay into this church. Verse 18, for in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. Okay, so the, the, the Corinthian church is divided whenever it meets together. What does that have to do with the Lord's Supper that we are about to read about? What, why does it matter and what problems do the divisions cause? Verse 20. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry and another goes drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. You see, when people show up divided, it means that they are not submitting their own will to the will of the body that they are joining with. And here's what that means practically. In other words, they are out for themselves instead of for the good of the community that they belong to. So they gather together to take part in the Lord's Supper, the thing that Jesus has commanded them to do, and everyone just fends for themselves. One drinks too much because he wants to, and another goes hungry because someone else thought it was their job to eat as much food as possible. 
And it, it, and it is in their behavior that Paul says they are embarrassing themselves, they're embarrassing each other, and showing exactly how they really feel about the community they are a part of. They don't really care. You see, there's this pervasive attitude that, that's seemingly being displayed by the Corinthians, and it's this. It says, well, what does anything else matter? At least I got mine. At least I got my drink. At least I got my food. So why does anything else matter? So then Paul continues. I'm not going to read it, but he explains what the entire point of the Lord's Supper is to proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And he reiterates the exact instructions that Jesus gave, just in case anyone might have forgotten. But then look at Paul, what Paul says next in verse 27. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup, for anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. Pause, because Paul just said a whole ton there. That seems because the way that we translate the Greek to the English isn't always the most easily readable thing in the world. Let me put it this way. The Lord's Supper is something that Jesus commanded. It is one of his last night with his disciples. He says, hey, look, take this bread. This represents my body. And take this drink. This represents my blood. And all of which was given so that you might have a shot at salvation. So he says to the church, whenever you do this, remember what I have done for you. It's not about you, it's about Jesus. But Paul very clearly states here that while doing something good, which is partaking in the Lord's Supper, they are actually sinning. And the very act of taking part in the Lord's Supper with their attitudes makes what they are doing sinful. You see, the Corinthian church was making a good action designed to draw us closer to God and proclaim his death as, as penalty paid for sin. And so Paul tells them, he says, look, you drink judgment on yourselves. You're proving by your attitude and by your behavior that you don't care about this. You drink judgment on yourself because your actions show where your heart is. It reveals that even though they're doing a good act, they're doing it in the wrong way. So watch what he does in verse 33. Verse 33. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. So Paul, at the very end of this verse, basically says, yeah, there's, there's more we need to talk about, but this is what I need you to know right now. See, Paul makes his point clear in that last verse. If you're going to do it right, do it all the way right. And do whatever you need to make sure that you're doing it all the way right. See, it is when we see what is good that we actually learn what sin is. You see, and this is going to be a little complicated, so stick with me. Sin shows us the opposite of what is good. 
If I see someone give a homeless man a jacket, that's a good thing. But it also implies that taking that jacket from the homeless person is a bad thing. Doing good can help us see what is bad, and doing bad can help us see what should have been good. So it is with this framework in mind and understanding exactly how the Corinthian church struggled with this, we're going to flip, remember where I told you, to Romans chapter 7. <clears throat> Romans chapter 7. Paul is writing to the Roman church. He's given them the ABCs of Christianity, what Jesus' death and resurrection means for us. <clears throat> In Romans 6, Paul says, look, you're either serving God or you're serving sin. There is the spirit that you serve or the flesh. And God, through Jesus, gave us the choice to stop serving the flesh and to actually serve the spirit. And by serving the spirit, we stop focusing on what we do as a means of salvation. But instead, it's what Christ did that saves us. So Paul says, hey, you know that law that you were trying so hard to follow in order to be saved? Yeah, you don't need to worry about that so much anymore. But he argues, and this is what we're about to read, he argues that there is still a place for the law. The law is not bad, it's good, so why does it still matter if we're no longer bound by it? This is where we pick up Romans 7, starting in verse 7. It says, What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means, yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For what I would not have known what it is to covet, if the law had not said, you shall not covet. And before I go further, just so we all have the same understanding of what covet is, coveting is wanting something that someone else has. Not, want, not saying like, oh, you have a Corvette, so I'm going to go buy me a Corvette. No, no, no. It's, I want your Corvette. Specifically yours. I don't want another one. I want yours. I want to have it, and you not to have it. So that is what coveting is. Ready? Verse 8. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandments, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. You see, sin is insidious. It's tricky. And temptation knocks at every door it possibly can. And we see that consistent here. It's like when you tell someone, hey, don't do that thing. And the second you tell them that, the first thing in their mind is, I want to do that thing. You've told them what's good, not doing it, and all of a sudden they want to do it. Like telling a kid not to reach into the cookie jar. You know, I'm lucky. I used to, um, at Costco, you can get Flintstone vitamins. And I don't know if you still can. And if, don't tell me, because I will go buy a million of them. Those things were like candy to me. And my parents had to hide it from me so that I wouldn't like just eat them throughout the day and OD on vitamins. And they had to tell me, don't. Only eat these in the morning. When you wake up and when you eat breakfast, don't eat these throughout the day. And of course, if it was Sabbath and they were sleeping and they were taking a nap, guess where I was? Crawling on top of the refrigerator, into the cupboard, and getting myself some vitamins. <laughs> and part of the motivation for doing it in such a dangerous way was because they had told me not to, which meant that I couldn't trust them if I said, hey, I want some vitamins. <laughs> Did not get it. I just know they tasted good. 
Don't tell me if they still sell them. <laughs> Paul is saying, look, when the law told me that coveting is bad, I found out what coveting was, and then I wanted to do it. The sinfulness in me focused on that and convinced me to fulfill that desire, and sin produced covetousness in me by taking advantage of the knowledge that I had. You see, coveting is much different from the other nine commandments because coveting is the only commandment that is not visible. Every other thing you do, there is evidence of it produced in action. But coveting is, remember what I told you, coveting is simply desiring what someone else has. Not acting on that desire. Simply wanting it. This is the one private commandment that if you break it, only God and you know. No one else ever has to know. And so sin working in Paul produces this covetousness. And the second that he desires it, he has already fallen. So let's continue in verse 9. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. In other words, sin, using the law took advantage of the knowledge I had and led me into sin. Verse 10, the very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through it, through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. You see, by doing something bad, we prove what was good. We are, we are made aware of what was good all along. And Paul's like, look, I tried to know what was good so that I could do it. I tried to know the law so that I could follow it. And in trying to do good, I actually ended up sinning. I didn't mean to, but I did nonetheless. But that doesn't mean the law is bad. The law didn't make me covet. Sin did. The law only revealed that coveting was sin. Now listen to me, this is all an example. This sermon is not about coveting. Coveting is just the example that Paul uses in this passage. This next verse is the entire point of this sermon. So if you miss this, you miss everything. Verse 13. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. Listen to me very, very carefully. Adventists run a, a high risk of falling into this trap, but Christians in general all across the spectrum run a risk of falling into this trap. You can sin in doing good. You can sin in attempting to do good, in trying to do good. You can sin while you're doing the good thing. But we assume that by doing good, we're not sinning. And so we don't even think to be critical of ourselves. We don't think to ask the question, is what I'm doing actually right? This is the easiest trap for us to fall into. Because usually when you sin... Other people may know, but when, you're, when you sin by doing good, the only people who know are you and God, and usually you're the last one to find out. No one ever has to know publicly. 
And usually we only find out we've done wrong when we look back in hindsight. It is not often that we know we are doing wrong before we do it. And this is the great struggle that Paul faces. And yes, we're going to go through that really confusing part in Romans 7 that everyone struggles to read. So we'll get there. Verse 14, for we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. Paul is saying, look, I want to do good, and I don't get why my body keeps doing wrong when all I'm trying to do is something good. But I know it's the sin producing that in me. I'm not wanting to choose it, but I'm still doing it. So let's continue verse 18. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh, in my body. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Verse 20. For if I, for I, now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but the sin that dwells in me. So he looks back at his actions. And he understands that whenever he does something wrong, he proves that the law was right. And he's frustrated, as you and I can be, because even though he knows what's right, he keeps finding himself doing wrong. It's like some strange out-of-body experience. I know what's right, yet I keep doing wrong. Let me give you an example. It's very embarrassing. A few months ago, I was sitting in a gas station parking lot, and a man in a white SUV pulled up next to me, and as I was pulling out of the gas station, he approached me, and he, or he rolled down his window, and he, and he kind of waved at me, and he said, hey, I'm working on a hotel installation down the road, and um, are you interested in any, um, any speaker systems or sound equipment? Many of you already know where this is going, and yes, I fell for it. Um, so I say, no, not really, not at this time, and he says, well, here, just take a look. So I take a look, knowing exactly what this is, which is, it's known as the white van speaker scam. And what these people do is they pull up to gas, and they target millennials. Right? So they target millennials. And they tell you that they have these, this sound equipment that they're trying to get rid of, that they have a limited time to get rid of. And he told me, he's like, i got to get rid of it within the hour by lunch. That's how they create the sales tactic. And here's the thing. The entire time I'm talking to this guy, I know what's happening. And he talks, he talks to me. He shows me, he shows me the speakers. He shows me um, the price tag on them, $2,500. All this good stuff. And he says, well, I'll give it to you for, for 500 And I was like, I'm not doing 500 We ended up agreeing on 300 And immediately I drove to the bank knowing what I was doing. I cannot explain to you how frustrating and embarrassing this is. I don't want to tell you this story. But everybody gets one. Everybody gets one scam. That's what I've, that's what I've decided as, after I fell for one. And even on the way to the bank across the street, I still look, I even looked up the scam. I read it on the internet to confirm if this was if I was right in my suspicions, and I was. And I still bought for $300 cash 
a box of speakers that are probably worth $5. And they're proudly sitting in a box in my apartment because there's no way I'm setting those up. Now, there's part of me that wonders, and I'd rather just let it be, that maybe I'm the one person that didn't get scammed and those speakers are actually amazing. We're just gonna let that be the mystery that it is and just let me believe my delusion. But look, the entire time that I was falling for this scam, I knew what was happening and I cannot explain it to you. I still fell for it. This is the frustration that Paul is experiencing. He knows what he's doing is sin, and yet he keeps doing it. He knows what's right, and he keeps falling for it. This is the struggle that each one of us faces. Because even when you're doing good, you can still sin. Let me give you a very, very practical example. One of the ways the church talks about money is we say it's important not to buy really, really extravagant things. We judge pastors based on the car they drive. We judge members based on whatever they might wear to church. We say, how dare you spend so much money on things? It happens across the board. And then we watch members come in and brag because I saved money by shopping at a thrift store or shopping at Walmart or shopping at Target, which I happen to love Target, so I'm condemning myself in this. We say, look, I save money because I shop at these stores. But you spent $200 on a pair of shoes. How dare you? And yet the money that you saved buying something at Walmart or Target or another company was probably made using slave labor in a different country. So which is worse? Exploiting humans for the cheap clothing or honoring humans and spending a little bit more on the items that you buy? Now, this isn't true 100% of the time, but in doing good and wanting to save money and spend responsibly, it is often the case that we sacrifice human labor, people that Jesus loves, people that Jesus died for, just the same as you and me, in order that we might feel morally righteous because we did the right thing. And listen to me, I say all of this while preaching from an iPad and Apple is not innocent. In doing good, you can sin. Now, let me be on the flip side here. If I want to buy a pair of $200 shoes, and I'm not even thinking about human labor, and I'm thinking, I just want to look good, well, then I'm sinning because I don't care about anything else. I just care about me. You see, it's not the action. It's your entire approach to it. Buying something isn't bad, but why you might be buying it and what you might sacrifice in order to buy it, that is when it becomes sin. And doing good and saving money can absolutely still be sin. And that is the most practical example that I can possibly give you this morning. But we'll continue. In Matthew 7, verse 21, at the end of the Beatitudes, Jesus says something interesting. He says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform miracles? And then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. In doing good, you can sin. Do not be convinced 
that just because you are doing the right thing, that you are doing what is right. And this is one of the hardest things about being, I love when people tell me being Christian is the easy way out. There's almost no way of life that, that makes you look at, your, at yourself more harshly. There are some that make you look much more harshly than us, don't get me wrong, but this is, this is up there. Because when we look at ourselves, we find out all the ways that we keep messing up. Jesus then immediately says that the wise man builds his house on the rock, while the foolish man builds his house on the sand. But have you ever realized that sand is just a whole bunch of rock? Technically, if I build my house on the sand, I'm still building it on the rock. Technically, I'm still right. And yet when the moment comes, my house gets swept away by the storm. And I'm someone who thrives off of being technically right. I wanted to be a lawyer before I wanted to be a pastor. Technically right is the best kind of right in my mind, but here it wouldn't work. Jesus says, don't commit adultery. And so we might say, okay, cool, I won't cheat on my spouse, but hey, admiring God's creation walking by is an adultery. And Jesus says, yeah, guess what? You're still cheating. You're still committing adultery. You thought you were doing good by not doing bad. Turns out you're still doing bad. And Jesus says in Matthew 6, 1, be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you will, not, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be honored by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Giving to the needy and doing it for attention? Congratulations. You're sinning. Doing good can absolutely still condemn you. Because here's the thing. Doing good never outweighs the bad. Never. You can compliment me a million times and then tell me that I'm a terrible preacher. Guess which one is going to stick with me? Don't tell me that. I'm just kidding. Tell me that. <laughs> doing the right thing does not mean we are doing what is right. And it's not often we get the chance to catch ourselves in the wrong before it's too late. But I believe right now, today, we as a church collectively and we as a church individually have just been given the chance to do that. This is where I make some enemies today. Wanting to keep the wrong people out of your country is good. Taking kids from their parents in the process of fulfilling that desire is wrong. Now, I'm not going to Trump bash. I'm not going to Hillary bash. So don't run away. I don't care who you voted for. Jesus loves you just the same. Right? This isn't about Democrats versus Republicans, liberals versus conservatives. This isn't about any of that. But we've just spent the last 25 minutes seeing example after example of people who desire to do good actually doing wrong. The Corinthians wanting to do the Lord's Supper actually end up condemning themselves by the way they acted with each other. But the good we do never outweighs the bad. And we can keep all the criminals out of this country that we want, and it won't let us stand before God any less guilty 
for removing children from their families. After all, it is God who understands more than anyone else the pain of being separated from his family. The ends do not justify the means. This is children that we are currently watching being separated from their families and being put quite literally wherever we can find space to shove them into. And you know the excuse we are using to get those kids? Liz Goodwin of the Boston Globe cites a defender saying that in several cases, children were taken, quote, by border patrol agents who said they were going to give them a bath. As the hours passed, it dawned on the mothers that the kids were not coming back. Wanting to protect your border, your family, your friends, and your loved ones is a good thing. But if you are actively and needlessly harming others in your pursuit of that safety, you are in support of that behavior, or you are in support of that behavior being done by others, then I have no problem using whatever I have of a prophetic voice as a pastor to say this, you are sinning. Well, I'm not actually involved in rounding people up, so I'm not the one sinning. Remember the Corinthians, I, I got mine. What does anything else matter? Consider Leviticus 19, 33 and 34. When a stranger sojourns within your land or with you in your land, you shall do him no wrong. You shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as the native among you, and you shall love him as yourself, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. And if me crossing the acceptable preaching line is saying that it's wrong to take kids from their parents and put them in a vacant Walmart, then so be it. If that's where you and I disagree, then we disagree. But we look back at World War II era America, we look back at the internment camps that we put Japanese legal American citizens in. And we say, well, we would never let people be rounded up by the busload today. You see, we're far too civilized. We've learned from the past, and then we watch it happen right before our eyes. And we try to justify it by calling their parents criminals. When in reality, the only reason we are afraid of their parents is because we assume they are guilty of wanting to cause us harm in a land that professes a belief that every person is innocent until proven guilty. We talk about MS-13, but did you know that MS-13 was founded in America and exported out? It was a threat originally from within, not outside. In the fundamental belief for the Sabbath, if you look it up on Adventist.org, you look in all 28 fundamental beliefs, there are 48 verses given to support keeping the Sabbath. And Adventists keep it fervently. But there are over 2,100 verses in support of us taking care of the least of these, people like the poor, the orphan, and the widow. When there are over 2,100 verses calling us to act, how can we possibly stay silent while people that Jesus calls us to love are being treated unjustly before our eyes? There are many of you who already agree with me, and that's fine. And there are many of you that might disagree with me, that's fine. What I want you to know is it's okay to want positive and solid border control to keep the wrong people out. It's just not okay to take kids from their families. That's never okay. 
Jesus says you must become like little children to enter the kingdom of God. Children are things that are people and creatures that Jesus values above all. But there's a truth here today for each and every one of us. Aside, politics aside, each of us in doing good at some point has done wrong. Which means that if not even our good actions are good, then what's the solution? I want to end this positively, not negatively. I don't want to end this as a message of condemnation. I want to end this as a message of positivity. It's time to remember who is on our side. The creator of the universe. Through every good and bad deed we do, God is with us and he never stops loving us. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. And this is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Remember that while sometimes your works condemn you, it is Jesus who saves you. It is a gift, which means you didn't earn it, and you don't have to earn it. You can relax. And when we mess up, or when we realize that we have already messed up, there is one thing we can always do. 1 John 1.9 tells us if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If you've been attending church for the wrong reasons, if you've been pretending to be kind to someone while really hating them, if you've been looking out only for yourself instead of the others around you, then now is the time for you to confess to God and ask forgiveness because God is faithful and just and forgives you always. Romans 8 tells us, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus the law of the Spirit who gives you life has set you free from the law of sin and death. No matter how bad you've messed up in your life, God still loves you, and he still wants to forgive you. He wants to bring you into his kingdom and to love you endlessly like he already does, and he wants you to experience a life-saving relationship with him. And if there's any doubt in what I am saying, then don't take my word for it, take Paul's. For I'm convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. You are never too far gone. You are never too unimportant. You are never too ignored. You are never too alone to experience the love and life that God has for you. And my call to you this morning is to step into that love because there is no condemnation there. And if there's something you've been doing, you thought you were doing it good and turns out, oh wait, I've been doing this wrong, there's forgiveness for you. And I pray that you will find it, that you'll ask for it, and I know that you will receive it. And I am thankful that we get to walk as a church family and a church community together in the freedom that Christ has for us. So be encouraged, knowing that no matter what, you are absolutely covered and absolutely loved.